in a generation a voice arrives that speaks uh, oh yeah here here I got it here very important note here it says Shepard he says uh, I was uh, happened to be no looking at some notes uh, this guy makes notes on shows listen he says Shepard and he's a serious listener <laughs> he says Shepard I happen to be looking at some notes I made on a show you did on April 4th 1970 you discussed the Walter Mitty syndrome and remarked, quote, the great era of public fantasy is probably over. Now new types of fantasy will arrive. Public fantasy, he's referring to. New types of fantasy will arrive, mostly private. And then he goes on to say, this reminds me of today's massage parlors, where every man is treated like Caesar. Every man is treated like Caesar. <laughs> Caesar's retreat is one such parlor. Shepard, another prediction is verified. Well, some night we will have to do a, uh, a piece on private fantasies, which are becoming more and more uh, virulent in their own way. But, you know, speaking about private fantasies, uh, this is an important, a very important date tonight. Right right now, tonight, is an important date. And, uh, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's an important thing happened many years ago on this date. What do you think it was? All right. No, it, truly historic. Now, wait a minute. Truly historic. A, 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 a true moment of history was passed. And here's what it was. A man in Norwood, Massachusetts, did a thing, just went out and did it, and it was the first time in history this had ever occurred. And it began an entirely new era for mankind. In Norwood, Massachusetts. The year was 1896. I'll give you a clue. What was it? And his name is unknown to most historians, like most truly historic things. It's not written in history. 
You know, history tends to, to, to concern itself only with elections and with battles. Kings, presidents. But historic moments of true history, I'm talking about really historic moments, are rarely recorded. For example, uh, talk about, a, uh, you know, the kind of historic moment I, I'm referring to is can you imagine the first guy that had a telephone installed in his house? Now, that's not the same as Alexander Graham Bell saying, What hath God wrought? Or Mary had a little lamb. I'm talking about the first guy that had a phone installed in his house. That was a historic moment, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you say? And there had to be somebody who had the first phone installed in his house, and sat around and waited for it to ring. <laughs> you know, and, and and there 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 is another historic moment: the first person who actually, just to get some business done or something done, actually made a phone call, called somebody else. There had to be a first time. You know, the idea of, of, of the inventor, Graham Bell, talking to his uh, assistant is not the same as making a phone call. They were trying this equipment and experimenting with it. That's not the same. I'm talking about the first guy that actually made a phone call. This is, uh, gee, i got to talk to Charlie, quick, give me the phone. You know, he cranks it or whatever it is he does. <laughs> that must have been a historic, it was a historic moment. And he's been lost in history, completely lost. Well, what happened on this date in Norwood, Massachusetts, in 1896? And while you're mulling that over, uh, do you have a little goodie in there for us, Bill? Do you? Why don't you press the button, please? Who's in charge here, lady? Oh, good morning, Mr. Policeman. Here, the Red Baron of Lufthansa German Airlines is in charge. I'm tell him he shouldn't hog all those meters parking your 747 jet in the street. When he gets back from choosing movies for Lufthansa 747 transatlantic flights, he will move the plane. I wish I could afford to fly to Europe. You can. November through March, fly Lufthansa from New York to Germany economy class round trip for only $240. On something that good, there must be a hitch. No hitch. You fly any day and travel on your own. You can land in your choice of many German cities. Even land in one and fly home from another. And can stay 22 to 45 days. If you fly eastbound on Fridays and Saturdays, or westbound on Saturdays and Sundays, there is a $15 extra charge each way. $240 round trip November through March, New York to Germany on Lufthansa? Okay. Um... Give me 42 dimes and I'll go down and feed you meters. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hello, hello, Tess. Do you, you got your yeah, hair? We're back on the air there. Hello there. Get that 747 jet out of the driveway, will you there, Baron? Uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> speaking of historic moments here, uh, I, uh, I have a historic commercial here for Shoe Town. And uh, we'd like to lay it on you there. Shoe Town's got it all. And I quote here it says, it's Shoe Town's got it all together for you. Now, it says, you know those far-out Bridgetown flood shows? The Bridgetown flood shoes that the boutiques have for up to 30 bucks? Bridgetown floods. Shoe Town's got them. Shoe Town's got the... They, they put all these little things in the commercial. You know, you're supposed to get real hip. Like, says, Shoe Town's got them. And then parentheses says, now dig this. Shoe, t- <laughs> Shoe Town's got the very same Bridgetown floods for $12.88. And uh, these are these dynamite two-tone 
multicolored jobs. Red, white, and blue, green, purple, and orange. Beige, brown, navy, pink, yellow, more. They light up. Some of them are even neon colored. The smoothest leathers. And these shoe town shoes are outrageous, according to the commercial. Only at the shoe town. Get this live quality in sizes for men just twelve eighty eight are waiting for you only at the shoe town in Lawrence, Long Island, three forty eight the Rockaway Parkway, Turnpike, or the Shoe Town in Oceanside, Long Island, thirty five hundred Long Beach Road. That's Shoe Town. Bridgetowns. Floods, shoes. Great. <laughs> Where will it ever end? Uh, you know, speaking of uh, of a historic moment, so have you ever had the feeling? Now, is this a private feeling with me, or is is it a is it a feeling other people get? I suspect most people, unfortunately, don't have any sense at all of history. I mean, even their own history. Do you ever get the feeling when you cross, say, Sixth Avenue, or say you cross uh, Broadway, or you cross uh, Fifth Avenue, uh, the the feeling that this could be the first time ever in history that a guy has crossed going from east to west on Fifth Avenue at this specific angle and at this specific fee- speed. That You ever get that feeling that you're the first that's done anything? And in fact, I'll bet, well, no, you don't. Well, see, I, I don't think being an engineer you have much of a sense of history. Most of them don't. Uh, no, no, I'm not putting them out. They're the guys that make machinery and are, are, are machinery-oriented, equipment-oriented, rarely have much of a sense of, of, uh, of any kind of past. As a matter of fact, you know, I found this to be true in, in, uh, in for example, I was in, uh, in a car factory uh, here a couple of months ago, and uh, it was in, uh, in, in Sweden. They make the Saab there, you know, and I was in the Saab factory there. And here it's a very ultra-modern factory, and they're all electronic equipment making these cars fantastic. And I'm walking along with this guy who who uh, has been with the company for forever, you know. And I said to him, I says, hey, he said, uh, uh, do you have any of the very first sobs around that you guys ever made? He says, what, the first sob? You know, as a Swede, he's the first to sob. And I said, yeah, the first, the very first ones. He says, what do we have this for, huh? <laughs> I says, well... It would be kind of interesting, see? And, and one of the other guys who was with us, who was a mechanic, this woke him up right away. He says, yeah. So we went around in the back. They had this old garage in the back someplace. And there in the back of the garage, just sitting there with dust all over it, was Saab number one, the first Saab they ever built that came off the line. And there it was, just sitting back there. And it's a, it looks very interesting compared to what they look like today, you know. But... Uh, uh, they, they they thought that was kind of unusual that somebody would ask them about that. Because most people simply are, have no interest in that. No way. Uh, that's unfortunately true. For example, here at the radio station, now this station's been in business now since uh, well, very earliest days of radio, and yet there are very few pieces of equipment, for example, around that this station has that it had then would be kind of great to see one of these big double-button carbon mics, you know, that you see in the old pictures with the ring, with the springs and all that stuff. Now, I have never seen one of those. I guess what they do is when they get rid of them, they just throw them out or something or, you know, sell them to a junk man. But now I'm going to ask you about that history. What was the, what happened on this date? Well, I'll tell you, you, you would never guess because it's not going to be written in any history book. The first man 
who ever actually bought an automobile bought it in 1896 on this date. Now, there were other automobiles around, but the, but the guys built them. And the first guy that actually went out and bought a car, and they even has, have his name. His name is George H. Morrill. <laughs> M-O-R-I-L-L. George H. Morrill of Norwood, Massachusetts. He went out and bought a car. He was the first guy in history that anybody knows about that actually bought a car. Now, what kind of a car did he buy? It was 1896. What did he buy? You curious what he bought? Well, he bought a car that was made, literally made by hand. Of course, they were all made by hand in those days. He bought a car from Frank Durier. You ever hear of Durier? Well, Durier was a great pioneer, far greater in, in his own way than Ford was. And they, he built this car, and uh, he had a company called the Durier Motor Wagon Company. And uh, they built, <laughs> they, they were the first guys to ever actually build a car that they sold. They went right out and they sold it. And uh, they made 13, in fact, they were the first guys that ever made it cars, of, made two cars of the same design. In other words, they began to build a car and they built several of them. They didn't just build one and then that was it. And then they built another one that was very different. And uh, so Durier sold his car, and he had made 13 of them that year. They made this car. <laughs> and, and Mr. Morrell of Norwood, Massachusetts, bought one of those cars, and they, he went out and he drove one. And by the way, here's a picture of the car, of, the, of, that, of that type of car. See, there it is. There's the car right there. And it does look like a wagon. It looks, what it looks like, it looks exactly like a wagon. It does not look like a carriage or anything. It looks like a wagon without a horse in the front. That's why they call them horseless carriages. It looked like a wagon, and uh, they stuck a motor in it, and it actually worked. And uh, they took off. Now, another historic date. This is WOR New York. You want to hear another historic th thing that happened? This, however, was... Uh, we just passed it. We just passed this date. And before we, before we do... And it's connected with the same thing. Before we do anything along that line. Are you interested in this kind of thing? Seriously, I mean, a guy, can you imagine a guy going out and doing something? I'm sure he had no concept that he was a historical character. Now, if you don't think buying the first car was a historical move, every place you go in the world today, everywhere you go in the world today, the, the desire on the part of everybody, I mean, you go to India, you go to, and I've been to these places, you go to India, you go to Japan, you go to uh, you go to uh, Africa, you go any place I've ever been. The dream of every guy that lives in that place is to have the car. That that is a symbol of, of really something. Uh, really, you, you really achieve the fantastic thing if you're in India and you have a car. Do you know that I was in India here just last year and I was riding around with a guy who was a government official. Now, he was no just you know ordinary slob. He's a, He's a government official saying we're riding along in this, in this car. And by the way, I'll ask you a bit of trivia. Do you have any idea what car they make in India? They make a car in India. As far as I know, it's not imported or exported anywhere. It's only made in India. What's it called? <laughs> All right. It's an Indian car. It really is. And it, it, it uh, looks, you know, it's an Indian car. And we're riding along in this Indian car, see? And uh, he, he says, and it's a taxi, see? And, and he says to me, a, a, a motor scooter goes by. Now, the, I'm going to give you an idea how valuable cars in other places. A motor scooter, like a Vespa, 
go through right past us, see? And uh, I said, just out of the casual, uh, just make a conversation, I says, uh, you know, I said, gee, I see the Vespa's there. I said, that's, a, that's an old one. I said, look at that baby. I said, I used to have a Vespa. And the, he turns to me and he says, oh, he says, they're very interesting, very interesting. And the Indians are very polite. Say, he says, very interesting, very interesting. And uh, what the sort of Vespa did you have? I said, well, uh, I had the uh, 125. Now that you mention it, it's a 125. I said, uh, uh, I, I really dug it. I said, I really enjoyed having it. Very interesting. Uh, that is precisely the model that I have ordered. And I said, oh, you ordered a Vespa. He said, yes, uh, I have ordered a Vespa. And I said, uh, oh, uh, really? I said, uh, when do you expect to get it? I figured he'd say next week or something. He says, oh, well, I, I shall receive my Vespa in six years. I staggered. You know, my mind. Well, all right, I'll tell you the story. To get a Vespa or a motor scooter in India, it takes six to seven years. Years. And uh, they're all very complicated why this is so. It's a very complex they can get Vespas and all, but there's high import duties, and they have to they build them there. And it's a very complicated issue. And furthermore, he has to pay for his Vespa long before he gets it. And this is a tremendous amount of money to an Indian. And so it is taken out of his salary every week or every month, however he gets paid. And finally, seven years from the day he ordered his Vespa, he will get his Vespa. And I said to him, I said, well, what happens? I mean, if, if in the seven years... Uh, like you know, like you get hit by a sacred cow or something, or uh, or you get hit by lightning, or uh, you decide you don't want a Vespa. So he says, "This is this is not uh, possible. It will be transferred to a member of my family." Then, in other words, uh, you don't let go once you once you're on the list for a Vespa. Now, now, that's just, that's currently. That's not something in the past. I'm talking about. So the idea of owning a car is a great dream all around the world. Now, to Americans, we take it so casually that it becomes a great drag, <laughs> often, but not so. So Mr. Morrill, who bought the first car in 1896, he started a whole scene. And can you imagine taking delivery of the first car that was ever bought in history? Now, did he have any, have any concept of that? Now, you, you, might have been, you might have been part of a historical thing in your life and didn't know it. For example... Uh, there has to be some guy around who bought, uh, let's just say for argument's sake, just to, to pick one thing, uh, who bought the first, uh, well, let's see, who bought the first can of Right Guard <laughs> that actually was sold. There had to be one guy bought the first can. Now, he, of course, had no idea he actually was a historical, because, you know, there's been probably billions of right cards. So there had to be, yeah, there had to be a guy uh, <laughs> who, who bought the first bottle of uh, Diet Pepsi, for example, in a historical moment. Uh, speaking of uh, history, friends, you can, you can uh, be part of uh, a historical thing in your family. You can be the first guy in your family that bought snow tires before the snow came, you know, before you were buried. And I uh, wish you had. And uh, we'd like to suggest that you make them general winter cleat tires. Uh, General's rugged four rib snow tire. Backed by their fantastic promise, you go in snow or... Uh... Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Who is it that pays the toe? Uh... You go in snow or... Uh... No, it's not John Gambling that pays the toe. Who is it that pays the toe? Ultimately, I suppose that's true. But uh, you go in snow, or uh, all right, general pays the toe. Don't look at me so, 
so dumbfounded. He looks so... He's really forgotten it. He looks at me. Oh, Bill, you're not with it tonight. Let's see. Uh, mm, in Brooklyn, see Harvey Kushner at Howard Square Tire Stores. Yeah, Square Tires. It's an interesting avant-garde store. Uh, 2686 Atlantic Avenue. Yes, sir. Harvey Kushner. You asked for Harv. Standing right next to that pile of square tires. Let's see. Do you have another ding-a-ling? There it goes. <laughs> Let me sing this one out here with Tex. All right, join old Tex here. Hi, this is Tex Ritter for the New York, New Jersey, American Motors dealers. Come on, Tex. And they're coming on strong. Take that, take that close spin off your nose, Tex. Coming on strong. Coming on strong. Yeah, coming on strong. Because we've got the quality. Yeah, we've got the quality. Because you want to buy. Yeah, you want to buy. The protection of AMC. Yeah. At a price you have to pay. <laughs> I'm the number one. Keep them cars and the letters coming in, folks. In a carefree way. 73 AMC Hornet Hatchback. Big standard six. Huge hatch panel. Fold down rear seats. New safety bumpers. AMC Buyer Protection Plan. And now a special price. That's value. American style. AMC. All right, sing it out there, Tex. Coming Come on. on strong. See your New York, New Jersey American Motors dealer now. Uh, did he, and he, tell him a text sent you. <laughs> Is that a threat text? Come on, you get off my back. Ain't gonna no, no chicken plucker like you is gonna come on twist my arm like that. And uh, speaking of text, I'd like to point out that Gramercy Park closes at 64 West 23rd Street, New York says, and we quote here, Mister, if the new style of men's clothes turn you on but the high prices turn you off, you are a candidate for one of them real fine Gramercy Park suits. You see, that, 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 that damn accent that Texas got is catching. I mean, next thing you know, you're going to walk around saying, yep, uh, we'd like to suggest that you go down <laughs> try that accent down at Gramercy Park Close. They wouldn't understand you. 64 West 23rd Street, third floor, and they're open every day of the week. Gramercy Park, you'll save some dough, according to the spot here. 64 West 23rd Street in New York. And here's a little spot that says how sweet it is. The Mike Douglas Show is in Miami. Oh, goody. With Jackie Gleason as co-host. Don't miss the comedy and the nostalgia. Tomorrow at 4.30 on Channel 2 in New York. What's happening here? I have a feeling that I'm being invaded by a crowd of hungry clams. And they're nibbling at my kneecaps. Never did I think I'd find a day come that I'm plugging Mike Douglas. <laughs> Oh, right. you know, we're, we're, <laughs> that's like uh, that's like a John Dillinger walking in and opening a Christmas savings account at his local bank. You know, at 4%, he wants to save and buy something for that lady in red, like a blackjack or something. She wants one of them nice ones, you know, with the with the uh, alligator skin leather on the outside. But uh, let's see, we have one more spot. Don't we have, yeah, do we, uh, Jerry, you took it down just when I was about to read it. We got House of Chan up there? Uh, no, General Tar, yes. Uh, I can't read it. Uh, you've got it in the light there. I guess that means House of Chan, yeah. Okay, we'd, we'd like to recommend that uh, after you've, uh, after you've, uh, you may need something to brace you up after you've seen the Mike Douglas show. And uh, we'd like to suggest, you know, that uh, you go down to the House of Chan because they're, they've got this <laughs> great cocktail hour between 4.30 and 6.30. Now, there you go, and you have one of them Chinese martinis. And uh, boy, it'll set your eyeballs a popping. And then they have these uh, these uh, Chinese hors d'oeuvres. And uh, what does it say they're called? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's uh, some strange name. 
Well, you just eat them. You just holler out there. And incidentally, you, uh, they're having a Thanksgiving thing, a Thanksgiving feast in the Chinese manner. Now, you ought to see how the Chinese uh, give thanks. Uh, for example, they have barbecued capon with all the trimmings. They do it right, you know. None of this meatloaf. Uh, chestnut soup. <laughs> uh, you ever had chestnut soup? Unbelievable aphrodisiac. You take her down there and feed a couple of jugs of chestnut soup and that, oh, chestnut soup to pumpkin pie. All you can eat for $7 and a half. And uh, that's, uh, that's doing it upright. That's at 7th Avenue and 57, 52nd Street, the House of Chan. You go in there and you say, And they'll, they'll serve you fast. That means I'm, I'm in a hurry. Quick. And I'm, I'm carrying dough. And they'll serve you quick. Uh, oh, yeah, yes, uh, yeah, yes. Uh, what was I doing here? Forgot all about it, what I was doing. Uh, about the, about historic moments. Oh, I know. <laughs> You're very literal tonight. <laughs> you really are. Uh, you know, I, I, this would be a good night for you to go see uh, Peter Pan. You know, when that, when the, when that, uh, when the actress uh, playing Peter Pan comes forward and says, "Do all of you believe in fairies? All of you who believe in fairies, uh, raise your hand. You'd raise your hand. I know that half of New York would. Of course, they do believe. So uh, it takes. Uh, <laughs> oh, gee, it's bad news tonight. Yep. I, I'm thinking of doing a newscast. It's just nothing but bad news. Come right out and say, it's bad news tonight. And here's our first piece of bad news. Mayor Lindsay said he was going to rerun for mayor. He's going to run again for mayor. And now, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you you you, uh, you you talk about the history. I, I have, we have to be serious. History is a serious thing. Would you give me a little historic music, please? Please. That's it. Crank up the machine in there, Bill. There it goes. And now this deeply concerned radio station brings you Man Through History. Marching through dynasty after dynasty and through kingdom after kingdom, man remains basically mankind. Whether he's signing the Magna Carta or a check for $7.90 to give to Alexander's. Or a plastic football with a picture of Joe Namath on it. He remains that noble creature, man. Standing head and shoulders above the turtles. Stepping with giant strides over the squirrels. Tonight, we take this opportunity to salute Mankind, the historical creature. Striving ever, ever, ever and again and upward and onward, man is reaching for the stars. <laughs> By God, you're one of them. Loving your way along the Long Island Expressway. Battling your way across Queens. Living in that little hovel in Floral Park. Remember, no matter how humble you be, no matter how simple and basic your life, you are still part of the great noble experiment 
That experiment that nature foisted off upon the universe over a million and a half years ago. You, the Neanderthal, the Paleolithic man, one and the same. The moment that we first swam out of that antediluvian lake, looked out across the dark, gray, storm-ridden horizon, girded our loins, and began to have a faint glimmer of the first Howard Johnson in those early minds. Man was destined to rule the solar system. And so tonight, this deeply concerned medium of human expression takes time out from the hurly-burly of 20th century life to salute the whole concept. Not just to salute one group, one nation, one race, one idea, but all of us. Every last miserable one of us. Special reprints of this broadcaster available at $2 a copy. Suitable for framing. Yes, step by faltering step. Mile after mile. Mankind struggles over the vast desert of time. Reaching for what he knows not moving toward what point he knows not, driven by forces, by urges, by passions beyond his control, beyond his understanding. He inches forward, then sideways, then backward, then forward, then sideways, then backward, then forward. Tooth and nail, he battles towards an unknown goal. And so tonight, we salute thee in your own solitary fight, your own private struggle to remain above the surging waters that threaten to inundate you any second now. And by God, it's almost up your blooming knickers already, isn't it? Yes, but nevertheless, you fight on. Now, it is difficult for philosophers to know whether this comes out of some basic ego of man or out of some maniacal tenacity closely related to the Mako shark because he too strives forward in spite of getting bad press consistently. He never gives up. He maintains his sharkism to the end. And so mankind in his feeble yet immense effort continues to battle forward. He stands in line at the notions department at Macy's. For what? Because he's mad. Do camels ride the escalator to buy a pink shirt with purple sleeves? No. Only man. Does mankind ever question? No. He just does. And that's what sets man apart from all the other animals. He dares. He heads for the moon. He looks around, says this isn't so much. Didn't turn out to be nothing. Just a lot of damn dusty real estate. Then he goes back to the drawing board. 
He sends probes out to Venus, to Mars. Goes down to the deli for some thin-sliced pastrami. Touch of mustard. Plays a game of canasta. Watches Joe Namath. Struggles endlessly forward, onward. Unquestioningly. Driven by the forces that made him what he is in the first place. Man. What made us climb out of that antediluvian lake from underneath a rock? Did the goldfish do it? No. Did the electric eels do it? No. Did the bullheads do it? Although there are some elements of the bullhead in us. No. It remained only for us. To shed our webbed feet, the fins that ran down our back, get rid of the gill covers, stand upright, march off wearing a gray flannel suit with a button-down collar, looking for bigger, greater, more rich horizons. We remain what we are. Mankind. Eon after eon. One of the great myths, of course, that man has that no other animal has is that each succeeding generation of mankind is greater, stronger, richer, and smarter than the preceding generation. Which, of course, is one of the great man myths. But nevertheless, somehow, it is always believed and will always be believed. And will go, and maybe perhaps that's the secret. If there is a secret. And so tonight we salute that weak, solitary, almost airless creature. Driven by the hard Arctic winds, sweltering of the steaming tropical suns, battling his way to Venus, Mars, God knows where else. Undaunted, slightly ridiculous, unbelievably fat-headed, and yet at the same time, curiously noble, as he fights forward. On your left, you will see magnificent Alexanders. Just ahead of us, picturesque Fordham Road. And there we see the Eiffel Tower, the pyramids at Giza, George Washington Bridge, the Howard Johnson at the number 12 interchange. All noble creations of the mind of man. Upward, upward, upward we go. Follow me. Into the darkness, into the light. Follow me. We shall conquer the universe. the thrill of victory and all the drama of defeat is brought to you each week at this same time Mankind on Parade produced by Rune Arledge this is part of the vast public service programming of this concern station We salute thee. Yeah, it was exciting. It certainly was.
I hate to bring you down and lay a, a general tire spot on you, but uh, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna struggle forward in this world, you might as well struggle forward in style. Don't get stuck in the snow while you're doing it. <laughs> yes, indeed. We have General Tire with us again, and again, and again, and uh, and again. And uh, here, this one says, "Get set for rugged winter driving ahead during pick a pair time at your local General Tire headquarters." You just walk in and take your pick. They have snow tires, they have regular tires, and they have a sale. So get down there and find out about. You just walk in, and say, "Pick a pair." And remember the year price. Uh, you you ask him. He's got all those prices. But uh, th- there is a specific thing you should have tattooed on your jockey shorts. You go in snow or general pays the toe. And why don't you see Joe Callahan at the Nassau Suffolk General Tire Service, 154 Front Street in Hempstead. And you'll notice he has a warm, solid handshake. Comes from picking up all them tires. Now, that was kind of nice, wasn't it? Did you like our salute to mankind? There was another There was another thing that happened. Another thing. Are you curious who built the first car in America? Built the first? Not Henry Ford. No way. Who made the first automobile on record in America? Yep. Are you curious? All set. America's first successful gasoline engine motor vehicle was in operation September 21st in Springfield, Massachusetts. Designed by Charles E. Duryea, his brother, J. Frank Duryea, built a single-cylinder horseless carriage. The Duryea was the first American-made car to have an electric ignition and a spray carburetor, which is just what you got in your car, you know, with a spray there both of which Duryea himself designed and built. That was the first one, 1893. And uh, there was one very interesting milestone which is coming up, and I, I would like to celebrate it. Actually, we passed it, and yet it's not passed. The first race ever held between motor vehicles, the actual first race. You want to hear about that? The first, absolutely the first race that was ever held was held... <laughs> In uh, in no- uh, November second, in eighteen hundred and ninety five, which is just pretty amazing when you think about it. Just two years after the first car was built in America, the first race was held, and unfortunately, it was held on November second, and they had to give it up. Uh, they had to call it off because all the cars broke down and they they just simply didn't start. You know, they never got them going, so they put it off to the twenty eighth. That's what's coming up, November twenty eighth. Uh, they they put it out to the 28th, and and that car was actually that the race was won, and run. You want to hear about it? Where it was run? The first U.S. motor vehicle race in which any contestants finished at all, a real race, was sponsored by the Chicago Times Herald, and was run over a bitterly cold, snow-drifted course in Chicago, Thanksgiving Day, November 28th. It was won by J. Frank Duryea. That Duryea really did it. In a Duryea motor wagon. That was the name of his car. And believe it or not, this is what makes it so fascinating. It was a real tough race. You know, you would think the first race would be about a mile long. Fifty-five miles on a tough, bitterly cold day with snow. 
And it was uh, the average speed was seven and a half miles an hour. But that included, incidentally, innumerable delays for repairs. So that's what he actually averaged. Of the six starters, only two completed the historic race, the first race ever. Second place was won by a Mueller-Benz. Now, Benz, of course, is the Benz of the Mercedes-Benz. The Mueller-Benz, driven across the finish line by a Charles Brady King of Detroit. Charles Brady King was an umpire. He was supposed to be judging the race, but he had to take over the tiller when the driver, Oscar Mueller, who was one of the co-builders of the car, the second car, collapsed from co- exposure in the bitter cold an hour before the end of the race. <laughs> That's kind of exciting, isn't it? I mean, these guys, can you imagine? And, and, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that came out of racing, and the, the next year, 1896, see, they had this great big race that was actually run on a track. The first track run was held at Narragansett Park. You know Narragansett? You know where they have the horse races? It was held at Narragansett Park, Rhode Island, September 7, 1896. Seven vehicles were entered. This is the first time they ever ran on a track. Two electrics and five Duryeas. But two of the Duryeas were disqualified. They don't say why. You know, hanky-panky and all that stuff. All five heats, one mile each, was run by, won by a single car, not by the Duryea. It was run, won by the Riker Electric Stanhope. Average for the first mile, by the way, was 26.8 miles an hour. Second prize went to a Morris and Slalom. It's a great name, the Electrobat. <laughs> In fact, the race was so dull that the spectators at the race began to chant. They just went around and around. They began to chant. And what do you think they chanted? They created a, a phrase which to this day remains in the language. That historic day, which was September 7th, 1896 in Narragansett, Rhode Island. The crowd began to chant. You know how they do in, in uh, football games now? They holler, defense, defense, defense. Well, they, the crowd began to chant, get a horse. Get a horse. <laughs> get a horse. The whole crowd, get a horse. Get a horse. Get a horse. And already this, the first sorehead fans were beginning to develop in American sports. And you could just see Howard Cosell saying, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this thrilling, this thrilling contest is being brought to you by ABC. Yes, and Muhammad Ali. Muhammad, what do you think of today's race? You can hear, get a horse, get a horse. Of course, he would be telling us how great it is. And all the while, the fans are like, get a horse. <laughs> and so tonight, we take this opportunity to salute Charles Morrill, or was it George? George H. Morrill of Norwood, Massachusetts, the first guy that bought a car. Now, they don't say whether he was happy with it. He was also probably the first guy that came back mad. You know, these things all follow. He was probably also the first guy that found out that his, uh, his warranty didn't actually mean what he thought it meant. <laughs> so he, you know, he's probably the holder of many records. He was, he was the first guy that probably had a gigantic argument with his wife when he drove home with that thing. He was also probably the first guy that got discontented and wanted to buy the next model five minutes after he bought that one. So, you know, it's a history. You just can't stop history, and it's a fantastic march forward. So, fans, tonight we have taken the... we have taken the broad view, the great, vast, perspective view of this tiny dot struggling across 
this enormous, this howling desert of time. And you're part of it. You're part of it just as much as George Washington was, just as much as Richard the Lionheart was. Of course, those guys had better friends. But uh, that doesn't really mean anything in the end, does it? <laughs> uh, after all, talent's a myth anyway. But you're really a person. A real person. And they weren't happy either.